Well, good morning, everybody. How are you all doing? Good. Good. I'm doing well. It's great to see you all here. For those who are gathered in person, welcome to E-Free Church. For those who are joining us online, a special welcome to you, as always. And if you are joining us on Facebook or YouTube, let us know you're there. Give us a thumbs up or a hi or a, I'm here. Uh, and uh, we're so excited that we can worship in person and online together. If you're visiting for the very first time, a special welcome to our church. Today we are continuing in our series, and we are in week three of this series through the book of Mark. Servant King is a title of our series, and today we're going to be in chapter 2, verse 1, all the way to chapter 3, verse 12. And the title of this morning's message is Overcoming Barriers of Tradition. Overcoming Barriers of of tradition. And we are still in Act 1 of this three-act drama that Mark has laid out for us. And you may recall, if you've been here for the last two weeks, that in Act 1, it takes place in the city of Galilee. Thank you. And Act 1 takes place from chapters 1 all the way to chapter 8a. So the first part of chapter 8. And during this time, in Galilee, Jesus is performing miracles. He's healing people. And people are following him, and they're asking the question, Who is this Jesus? They're amazed. They're blown away by what they see. And so they keep asking, Who is this Jesus? And so most of the people who witnessed Jesus performing these spectacular miracles and signs who is this Jesus? Now, I say most of the people because not everybody who was witnessing these miracles felt the same way. There were some people, when they saw Jesus performing these miracles and healings, here was their posture. Who does he think he is? So while most of the people were saying, who is this Jesus? We are blown away. Some were like this. And by the way, if your arms are crossed, don't worry. But those in the crowd who were critical of Jesus, they stood there like this, pointing the finger at him. Who does he think he is? And this group, which, by the way, ironically, was the religious leaders those in the religious community, they stood there saying, who does he think he is? What happened was they had been so blinded by the barriers of their systems, of their institutions, of their traditions, and they were so blinded that they could not see beyond those barriers. Now, I'll say this. Traditions can be wonderful. Traditions are a great part of life. We see traditions in our families. We see traditions amongst friends. We see traditions in our churches. And so traditions are a healthy part of life. For example, your family, you might have a certain tradition at a certain holiday, maybe on Christmas, Thanksgiving, Easter. Easter, by the way, is only four Sundays away. 
Your family might have certain traditions, and sometimes, usually those traditions center around food. And so you can't wait for that holiday because you know you're going to get that dish. And so we have these healthy traditions. What we don't want to do is to allow traditions to become barriers that prevent us from expanding our horizons and growing as human beings. We don't want to get so set in our way that we don't get to experience all that God has for us to experience in this life. And so that's the backdrop to the passage for today. So I invite you to turn to the book of Mark chapter 2. Mark chapter 2 will continue in verse 1. And we're going to read to you verses 1 all the way to verse 12. And so today we're going to read good portions of Scripture because these narratives paint a wonderful picture for us. Or should I say sometimes a not-so-wonderful picture. But we want to see these narratives. And so Mark chapter 2, I'll read the first 12 verses to get us going today. A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the house. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man, carried by four of them. Since they could not get him to Jesus because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there with their arms folded. Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Get up take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Again, the crowds, they say, who is this Jesus? The religious leaders, their question was, who does he think he is? By the way, what I find interesting is this, that the religious leaders were actually there in the room in the first place. Think about this. It was packed. It was sold out. There was no room. And yet, the religious leaders, they were there. I find that quite interesting. And my guess is this. They arrived really early. You know when you're looking forward to something, like your favorite concert, a favorite sporting event? You don't show up an hour late, do you? No. You get there early hours ahead of the event. You tailgate, you hang out, and you wait in anticipation. These religious leaders, they showed up early, not because they wanted to tailgate, they wanted to make sure they had the front row seats so that they could sit there like this 
and just wait to pounce on Jesus. So they showed up. Whereas the crowds showed up with open hearts, the religious leaders, they showed up with critical spirits and hardened hearts. And Jesus knew what they were thinking. So he told them, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. And please understand, it was no mistake that Jesus said, the Son of Man has authority to forgive sins. You see, the title, Son of Man, in the New Testament, it's used 88 times throughout the entire New Testament. The Son of Man, the Son of Man. And here's what's remarkable about that title. The vast majority of times the Son of Man is used in reference to Jesus, he's saying it about himself. In only one other instance in the entire New Testament is the Son of Man used by someone else to refer to Jesus. And that was Stephen as he was being martyred. Every other time is Jesus calling himself the Son of Man. And this was important that he let the religious leaders know that he is the Son of Man. You see, because in that title, there are three characteristics of Jesus that are displayed in that one title alone, the Son of Man. It includes his humanity, his humility, and his deity. His humanity, his humility, and his deity. You see, when Jesus came to earth and took on flesh, that speaks to his humanity. He dwelt among people. When Jesus came to earth, he was despised and rejected by his own community. That speaks to his humility. Now, in the Old Testament, there's a man named Ezekiel. Ezekiel was referred to as son of man. God referred to him over and over again. You are son of man, Ezekiel. In contrast, in the New Testament, Jesus is the son of man. Ezekiel was but human. Jesus in his full divine nature was God in the flesh. So the Son of Man, that title, incorporates his humanity, his humility, and his deity. And so when Jesus said to the paralyzed man, your sins are forgiven, he is demonstrating his divine authority. By the way, before we move on from this section, can we talk just a bit about this paralyzed man's friend's for a moment. Those were some great friends, weren't they? I'll tell you, I would love to have friends who would, take, who would not take no for an answer. Think about this. They show up with their paralyzed friend. They can't even get into the door because it is so packed. And they say, sorry, sold out, turn around. But this paralyzed friends, or this paralyzed man's friends, would not take no for an answer. They said, oh, well, we'll just make our way up to the roof. 
and they dug a hole in the roof and they lowered their friend. I got to tell you, boy, if you have four friends like that who are willing to dig a hole in a roof, you got some great friends. And I'll tell you what, I think this passage is an encouragement from God to us saying, maybe we ought to be those friends willing to dig a hole for our friend. This paralyzed man had four faithful friends, men full of faith who would not take no for an answer. And so the paralyzed man's friends, they came with open hearts. They were ready to believe that Jesus would heal their friend. The Pharisees, the religious leaders, they came, arms folded, hardened hearts, ready to pounce on Jesus. Now, if that wasn't bad enough, we're going to continue on in verses 13 to 17, and you're going to now hear about a scandalous occurrence. Look at verse 13. Once again, Jesus went out beside the lake. A large crowd came to him and began, and he began to teach them. As he walked along, he saw Levi, that would be Matthew, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax collector's booth. Follow me, Jesus told him. And Levi got up and followed him. While Jesus was having dinner at Levi's house, Many tax collectors and sinners were eating with him and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the teachers of the law, who were Pharisees, saw him eating with the sinners and tax collectors, they asked his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? On hearing this, Jesus said to them, it is not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. I have not come to call the righteous but sinners. If this passage sounds somewhat familiar, that's because in our most recent series, Incarnational Mission, we actually looked at Luke's account of this very scene. When we look at Luke's account and when we look at Mark's account, we see a man named Matthew or Levi, and he is called to follow Jesus. Matthew drops everything to follow Jesus. His life is transformed by Jesus. And do you know what the first thing Matthew did after being saved was? The very first thing Matthew did was he threw a party for Jesus. And he invited all of his friends. Now, if you were a tax collector at that time, you were an outcast. You were looked poorly upon. That means all of his friends were in that same group. And so this eclectic group of people were there, and Jesus was there at Matthew's home having this wonderful party. But do you know who else showed up? The Pharisees showed up. But they were uninvited guests. They came and they crashed the party, and they had only one thing in mind. It didn't matter that Jesus had just healed a paralytic. It didn't matter that Jesus had just transformed the life of a tax collector. The only thing the religious leaders had on their mind was making sure that Jesus understood that he had violated their traditions and norms and institutions. 
the Pharisees argue this. If Jesus really is the Messiah, as he claims to be, why is he hanging out with these outcasts? He should be spending time with us in the religious community. Jesus heard their question, and he, re- he responded with the best possible answer. He said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor. It's the sick. But what the Pharisees didn't understand was this. When Jesus said, it's not the healthy who need a doctor, it's the sick, the Pharisees failed to understand Jesus was talking about them. He was including them amongst the spiritually sick. But they didn't get it because they were blinded by their own barriers of their systems, their institutions, their norms, their traditions. Now, Matthew also records this occurrence in his gospel. In Matthew's account, he includes a phrase that we don't see in Luke's account or Mark's account. In Matthew's account of this scene, which you can find in Matthew 9, Jesus says to the Pharisees, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. And when Jesus said this, he was quoting from, I'm sorry, he was quoting from Hosea in the Old Testament. In Hosea chapter 6, verse 6, the prophet Hosea, he called the adulterous nation of Israel back to God. Hosea prophesied to the nation of Israel because here's what was happening at that time. Israel was filled with people who committed the most atrocious acts and then the very next day would bring sacrifices to the temple. And Hosea said, no, no. God desires mercy, not sacrifice. And so when Jesus quoted this, he was saying to the Pharisees, stop being blinded by your own traditions. You come with your sacrifices, but they are empty. I desire mercy. The religious leaders failed to see that Jesus actually came to save them as well. And what this tells us is this, that there are spiritually sick people everywhere. There are spiritually sick people outside the church doors and inside the church doors. Let's continue on. Look at verses 18 to 20. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Some people came and asked Jesus, how is it that John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees are fasting, but yours are not? Jesus answered, how can the guests of the bridegroom fast while he is with them? They cannot so long as they have him with them, but the time will come when the bridegroom will be taken from them, and on that day they will fast. Several hundred years prior to Mark's account, back in the days of Isaiah, the Israelites wondered why God did not accept their fasting and why God would not answer their prayers. And so God, through the prophet Isaiah, he rebuked 
the Israelites for fasting merely as an external show. All the while, their hearts were very far from God. And so Jesus uses this opportunity to point out the difference between the old and the new. The old ritualistic traditions of the Pharisees and the new life that is found in him. Let's talk about weddings for a second. One of the most important aspects of any wedding celebration is the food, right? That's one of the biggest parts of any wedding celebration. That's why couples, before their wedding date, they'll go and they'll do some food tasting. Maybe you did some food tasting, by the way. Hint, uh, taste all the food, okay? Make sure they bring out every possible option so that you leave full, okay? But most couples, when they go to a venue, they will taste all the options, because why? Because they want to make sure their guests enjoy the food. And what celebration, what wedding celebration would be complete without food? It would be an offense not to feed your guests at your wedding. An absolute offense. Can you imagine receiving a wedding invitation? You open it up, and there's a registry card right there, front center, and it'll tell you where you can buy a gift, okay? That's important, right? So you get the registry card. You can buy a gift for the couple at this place or that place. And then you see the RSVP card for the wedding. Now imagine if you receive this wedding invitation, you open it up, and just imagine if you look at the RSVP card and you read the words, in lieu of a dinner reception, we're asking all of our wedding guests to fast and pray. <laughs> uh, no, thank you. I'm not going to your wedding. Absurd. When Joanne and I got married, we had about 700 guests at our wedding. And certainly, we did not want them to go home hungry. And so, yes, we fed every one of the 700 guests a full meal because at a wedding, your guests, they are special, and you want to feed them. You know, over the course of my life, I've been to many, many weddings. And I can tell you pretty much what I ate at every one of those weddings. That's how much I love food at a wedding. After our 9 o'clock service, somebody came up and tested me on that and asked, do you remember what you ate? And I got it right. But that's how important food is at a wedding celebration. And so Jesus said, yes, there will come a time when the bridegroom will no longer be here and my disciples, they will fast. But right now is not that time. A wedding is no time for fasting. It's a time for feasting. 
And yet the religious leaders were so blinded by their traditions. All they could think about was Jesus and his disciples, they are breaking our institution and they are eating. And so Jesus tells them two parables. Let's pick it up in verses 21 and 22. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. Otherwise, the new piece will pull away from the old, making the tear worse. And no one pours new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins. And both the wine and the wineskins will be ruined. No, they pour new wine into new wine skins. Many of us have our favorite pair of jeans, right? For those who like to wear jeans, you might have your favorite pair of jeans, whether it's a dress jean or maybe a work jean, and that's your favorite. It's the most comfortable jean, and you just love it, so you just wear it over and over and over again. And eventually what happens is this. If you have a favorite pair of jeans, eventually it produces holes, right? It kind of wears out the knees, other places, and so holes start to develop. Now, I understand that, yes, you can buy jeans with holes in them already, okay? But for the sake of this illustration, let's just say you have a favorite pair of jeans and you're kind of bummed because holes are forming and you don't want holes in your favorite pair of jeans. So what if you do this? What if you go to the store and you buy a new pair of jeans not to wear, but to then cut out patches from the new pair of jeans and then sew them on the old favorite pair of jeans. Here's what's going to happen. If you don't wash the new jeans over and over and over and over and over again to allow them to shrink, if you take that new patch and you sew it onto your old, already shrunk jeans, it's going to tear because the new patch has not shrunk yet. And when it shrinks, it's going to tear away from the old jeans that have already shrunk. And the result is this. You have ruined jeans. You bought a brand new pair of jeans and you cut holes in them. Ruined. Your old jeans are ruined because the tear has gotten bigger. What Jesus was saying was this. You don't mix the new with the old because it'll ruin both. The new is ruined. The old is ruined. The Pharisees, the religious, religious leaders, they were trying to mix their old systems and institutions and norms with the new things. And it was ruining their experience. The old garment is the ritualistic traditions that keep people from experiencing the new, fresh teachings of Jesus. And Jesus further illustrates this by talking about new wine and old wineskins. It's the same idea. Back then, wineskins were made of uh, like sheepskin, and they would really, they would cut the hair off and cut it really close to the skin, and then they turn it inside out. And then the opening would serve as a spout where the wine was poured in. But if you took an old wineskin and you poured new wine into it, the fermentation process would burst the wineskin. 
The message is this. The new is the life in Christ. The old is the ritualistic systems that people have held on to for so long. The new is a life of Christ poured into the sinner who repents. The old is legalism and a mindset that keeps us bound to those institutions. Here's what the religious leaders argued back then. And this is where, well, the church today needs to look into our hearts. The Pharisees argued this. They said, the old is good enough. We don't need change. We don't want change. So we will resist change. So they rejected the fresh teachings of Jesus. We're going to come back to that thought in just a minute. For now, let's continue on in our passage and see how Jesus further upsets the uh, religious community. Look at verses 23 to 27. One Sabbath, Jesus was going through the grain fields. And as his disciples walked along, they began to pick some heads of grain. The Pharisees said to him, Look, why are they doing what is unlawful on the Sabbath? He answered, Have you never read what David did when he and his companions were hungry and in need? In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, he entered the house of God and ate the consecrated bread, which is lawful only for priests to eat. And he also gave some to his companions. And then he said to them, The Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even on the Sabbath. These religious leaders, they follow Jesus, and they're waiting for every opportunity to criticize him and his disciples. The Sabbath, we have to understand, is a sacred institution. And it's a special institution where God, when he brought his people out of Egypt, he established the Sabbath so that he would have this close relationship with the nation of Israel. It was a sign between Israel and God. So, yes, understandably, if you've practiced a tradition all your life, I get it. It's difficult when somebody comes along and does something different. I mean, it can make a person feel nervous, a bit uncomfortable, and sometimes downright angry when something new is introduced. Jesus was trying to help the religious leaders understand how blinded they were because they had gotten so set in their ways. The remarkable thing about this scene is this. The religious leaders were offended that the disciples worked to gather their food on the Sabbath. Here's the sobering part of this. The religious community 
was more concerned about maintaining an institution than they were about basic human needs. The disciples were hungry. In fact, they were starving. They didn't have much to eat. And so on the Sabbath, Jesus said, you're hungry, eat. The religious community was more concerned about maintaining their institution. They didn't think about the most basic human need of feeding your hunger. Wow, that's really sobering. It really is. Let's continue on to chapter 3. Look at verses 1 through 6. Another time, Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. Again, they showed up. So they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. And Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked them, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Now, we're not going to read the remaining verses, but I'll describe to you in verses 7 through 12, the crowds got bigger and bigger and bigger, and the religious leaders, they kept following Jesus. The crowds kept asking, who is this Jesus? The Pharisees, who does he think he is? They were upset because he messed with their institutions. They didn't like change, they didn't want change, and they resisted change. Not only that, the Pharisees took it one step further. And this, again, this is a remarkable scene. They went out and they plotted with the Herodians to kill Jesus. Now, allow me to share a little about the Herodians. The Herodians were a political group at that time. And they were sympathetic to King Herod. They liked King Herod. But here was the problem. Most in the Jewish community despised King Herod, including the Pharisees. They despised King Herod. The community, they just reluctantly followed the laws, but they did not like King Herod. But the Herodians, they were sympathetic. They liked King Herod. And so the Pharisees, the religious leaders in the Jewish community, because they did not like Jesus, they decided to join with this political group called the Herodians to kill Jesus. You see, in their mindset, it was this. We have a common enemy in Jesus. And so we'll lay aside our differences, Herodians. That's the extent that the Pharisees 
went to destroy Jesus. So, church, that brings us to today, the 21st century, March 20, 2022. My question is this. What can we learn from today's passage? Now, I know this much. Change is not easy for most people. I'm with you. I get it. Change is not easy. For most people, change might produce anxiety, an uncomfortable feeling. It can be very stressful. So most people don't do change very well. Right? Because we learn a certain system, a certain routine. We, we learn certain ways of doing things. We develop a certain norm or culture. And this happens in our own individual lives. We have a routine. If somebody comes along and messes up our routine, oh no, what am I going to do? We get anxious. This happens in our families. And yes, this even happens in churches. And from church to church, there may be different norms or cultures or routines or institutions. So one church might look very different than another church. This church might look different than another church. What makes it even more challenging is this. Within the same church, there are different preferences, different ways of doing things, even within the same church. And what happens is, over the course of our lives, when we get into the routine of our systems, here's a tendency. We begin to think, my way is the right way. And every other way is the wrong way. But why are we doing it this way now? We've always done it this way before. And so that can really be a challenge for churches. And what I find remarkable is this. More often than not, these conflicts, they aren't really theologically based. It's more like preferences. It's more like things that uh, we've been cultured into doing in that particular system or institution. What we think is right or wrong is not really theological right or wrongs. It's just preferences. But what can happen is, over time, if we don't develop an open mind and an open heart over time, we are going to think that this is the only way. And what God is calling us, church, to do is to overcome our own barriers of tradition. And we all have them. No matter what stage in life you are, no matter your upbringing, we all have them. The message of Jesus should never change, amen? The message of Jesus never changes. The gospel never changes God's mission for the church never changes. What does change from generation to generation, culture to culture, season to season, what does change is the form. Forms change. Many people in the religious community in Jesus' day, they could not see beyond the barriers of their tradition. We don't have to make that same mistake today. 
We don't have to. We can learn from their mistakes, and we can lay aside anything that hinders the progress of the gospel. Church, stay tuned, because in the weeks to come, we'll have much more to unpack regarding this subject. Would you bow with me? Father, we thank you for the gospel of Mark. This passage is a heavy one, God. It's heavy because maybe, in one way or another, it speaks to many of us. I pray, God, for myself and for our church that we would learn to look beyond the barriers that we might have in our own lives, that we would move forward with open hearts and open minds so that we can continue to proclaim the name of Jesus. Father, you've called us on mission. We are on mission to know Jesus and make him known. As we make our way toward Easter, I pray in these next four weeks that you would prompt us, that you would open up our hearts and even allow us to see maybe even our own traditions and institutions that have kept us so locked in behind these barriers. Help us to break free from that. I pray, God, that your work would be done in and through your church. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.